and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're listening to a conversation we had with Maggie Nelson about her new book on freedom, Four Songs of Care and Constraint. That's right. I've been a big Maggie Nelson fan for many years. I taught the Argonauts at UCLA, which was really a pleasure. So talking to her was really an exciting opportunity. Yes, I felt the same way, especially because I've known Maggie for a long time. And as I say in my introduction, she was my teacher. And I was very intimidated by her as well as just completely elucidated by her instruction. So it was exciting to get to talk to her about her work and uh, ask her questions and read her new book, which I've actually been thinking about a lot ever since. And um, I feel like it's one of those, like, get in your mind, like, slowly change your thought DNA kind of books. Yeah, I agree. And that's a very high compliment, which I think it deserves. Yeah, definitely. I think it changed my thinking on a some kind of structural level. So I recommend it. And I recommend this interview with Maggie. Let's get to it. Great. We're so excited to be speaking with the writer Maggie Nelson today. Maggie is the author of many books, most recently The Argonauts, which was a New York Times bestseller and the winner of the 2015 National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism. Her other volumes include more works of criticism, such as The Art of Cruelty, A Reckoning, and Women, The New York School, and Other Two Abstractions, books of poetic prose and poetry, such as Bluettes and Jane, A Murder, the memoir The Red Parts, Autobiography of a Trial, as well as three collections of poems. She is the winner of a 2016 MacArthur Genius Award and a recipient of many other awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, an NEA Fellowship, and an Andy Warhol Creative Capital Arts Writing Grant. Currently, she's a professor of English at USC, and having once been her student, I can attest that she's an incredibly thoughtful and challenging teacher who strikes through my vague prose and encouragement toward the heat in a sentence always made my writing better. She joins us today to talk about her latest book on freedom, Four Songs of Care and Constraint. Written in the wake of the 2016 election, On Freedom is an ambitious consideration of the complex knots of, quote, sovereignty and self-abandon, subjectivity and subjection, autonomy and dependency, end quote, that inevitably conjoin under the blanket of liberation. Focusing on four topics, art, sex, drugs, and the climate crisis, the book challenges the notion of freedom as a utopian state we might move toward untethered from our connection to the planet as well as each other. At the same time, it carves out a notable amount of space within realms many would be quick to deem as uniquely unfree, such as caretaking, addiction, conflict, and negative affect, even the ticking time bomb of global warming that renders so many of us feeling helpless and despondent. Here, we're asked to consider crucially what feeling free might have to do with feeling good, and what could be a better question than that. Welcome to the show, Maggie, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Kate. I'm so glad to be here. It's such a pleasure to talk, and to you in particular, because of our long knowing each other. (laughs) Thank you. Maggie, so maybe we should start with what brought you to the subject of freedom and why you decided to dedicate a book to it. Yeah, insanity, clearly. (laughs) It's a a big subject. I I mean, it's kind of silly in terms of taking on something so broad, but I'd kind of done a similar project before with the book that Kate mentioned, The Art of Cruelty. 
I'd worked with a keyword before, you know, so I kind of knew a little bit how to go about it just in terms of, you know, staying alive and curious to everything that kind of mentioned it in different realms. And in the time of my writing, the word was, I mean, it's always been, especially in this country, as we know, it's always an activated word. It never hasn't been. And it's often a weaponized word and it never hasn't been. But it really grew out of the Cruelty Project because I began to think that the opposite of cruelty might not be kindness or something, but that cruelty had a particularly constricting quality where the indeterminacy of an event was getting squashed away such that nothing else seemed like it could happen save a cruelty. And I began to feel like in a lot of thinkers that degrees of inserting degrees of freedom or flipping constraints, you know, were actually maybe more the opposite of that kind of subjugation or cramping. So I got really interested in the concept and the word was everywhere, in particular in the art world and in conversations about sexual freedom and in climate and in conversations about addiction. And since those are four spheres of interest to me, I began to really track them. I mean, the word was absolutely everywhere and still is in terms of political freedom, which the book you know, kind of ceremoniously declines to take up as its central object, though it obviously haunts it. And then the pandemic and the discourse on freedom around that, you know, didn't, I'd really finished the book before that all started up, but it was an interesting and obviously familiar to me mobilization of the term. It wasn't the opposition of like freedom and care had been something I'd been writing about for five years. So it wasn't like a surprise to see that explode in a new context because that tends to be how we talk. You kind of bring up in the introduction that the American call to freedom shifted under Trump and it became much more about like him as this figure, daddy figure, that anything he did would go, that people weren't embracing freedom as much as subjugation to an insane leader. And then at the same time, on the left, in more liberal circles, there was beginning to be this push for more constraint, like more forms of censorship, more forms of sexual censorship. And that must have kind of evolved over the whole writing process of the book, because I don't remember these things being so much at the fore in like 2015 or 2016. So did your idea of the project shift throughout the writing process of it? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I say in the introduction that it's true. I don't think Trump, I mean, there's this Let me back up and say that James Baldwin quote in the introduction where he says, I've met very few people with a real desire to be free. And very few of these were Americans. You know, I mean, typical for Baldwin, it's kind of a, you know, a witty provocation. And then I kind of combine that with the political philosopher, Wendy Brown, who's been working for like the last 15 years or more on really whether or not, you know, we are like losing the appetite for self-governance that we nominally say is at the core of the American project and what we want, but that, I mean, her argument is more like that economic structures and neoliberalism are kind of hollowing out the desire to govern ourselves. So I think I took these two kind of questions about, you know, I kind of peeled back and thought, you know, what if the desire to self-govern were actually much more complicated, as Baldwin suggests, and not actually all that common, and something we actually had to kind of keep our eyes on the prize of, and even sometimes talk ourselves into when, as you're saying, you know, there are these flickers of desires for, you know, autocracy, fascism, or even what you said at the beginning when you listed those dyads, like about sovereignty and, you know, self-abandon. And I, I kind of thought, I mean, obviously post-World War II, there was a huge psychoanalytic industry about, you know, the mass psychology of fascism, you know, what happened psychologically to have people perform that kind of subjugation for a, a leader or a movement. 
I didn't want to rehearse that. I've learned from a lot of that stuff, but I didn't want to rehearse it. So I got more interested again in like looking at these kind of what Abby Telbrunel calls like about drugs, fractal interiority is like kind of finding full, like kind of lenses like art or sexual experience or experience of drugs to look through to see like where we go to the experience, maybe in sex or maybe with drugs or things, or even in art, you know, to be unmastered in certain ways. And then yet the experience of being so provokes enormous amounts of anxiety. And the question of what we want or what we want the human experience to be made up of becomes very confused and that that confusion isn't something to be decided per se, but it is something, as Wendy Brown would say, that if we lose sight of it entirely like in a political level, you know, at our peril, but that doesn't mean that there aren't these other spheres in which I don't think people regularly enjoy explorations into on mastery, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. And one of the things, you know, that, and this again might be sort of too broad to address directly, but one of the things that you address in this book in terms of mastery and unmastery is divisions of power and how power plays into how we conceive of freedom. And I was curious about, there's a few starting points here in terms of how you think about power, but I was wondering if you could just sort of explain that a little bit in how, I think there's certain theorists that you start with, like Foucault, but, but like, what are some starting points about how you think about power in this book and how a reader could approach thinking about freedom and relative to power structures? I mean, I know that, you know, Foucault for some people and maybe for some listeners might become like with other theorists, a kind of boogeyman word for like complicated theory, you know, from the 20th century that they don't, it's like hard to read and maybe not even relevant anymore. But, you know, I clearly don't share that point of view. (laughs) And so I, you know, in Foucault, a lot of this project actually, as I say at one point, I think in the sex chapter, you know, a lot of this project really began with my own late 80s, early 90s enmeshment with Foucault as a student, you know, and in particular, the question of whether his analysis of power, how power moves and how power permeates, many people took him to mean that because power circulates everywhere, that means we're less free than we have imagined. And Foucault was at pains to actually say, that was not my argument, that cannot be attributed to me. The analysis of how power flows and shapeshifts and circulates is a study of how to be more free. <laughs> and that there is something about the a coagulated, calcified notion of where power is that actually, where we presume to always know that actually can impede everything from activism to feelings of freedom in our own lives. So I got really interested in that. The book, I wouldn't say power, certainly not political power, is one of its principal subjects. It comes up a lot using Foucault's, what I just described about this question about more or less free. It comes up a lot in the book, but if one wanted a real analysis of, you know, the powers of white supremacy or of even neoliberalism, I mean, whatever, you would look elsewhere for exactly that. Maybe we could move to the, just speaking of power and maybe more unexpected realms. In your chapter about art, I feel this push against censorship. I mean, both self-censorship of the artist and then also censorship of art from all sides, not just from the right. And which I completely share the agreement with and feel like the proper realm for digestion of art is criticism. Like that if you have a problem with a piece of work, like it's good to criticize it and think it through as opposed to abolish it and keep it hidden or destroy it. 
at the same time, I feel like where it gets more complicated, at least for me, and I just questioned and thought about this, is when art moves from a critical realm to one of commodity. So like you cite this Dana Schutz painting that everyone, you know, that people thought need to be removed from the Whitney show and because it depicted Emmett Till in ways that people found offensive. And I thought it was really interesting that Dana Schutz immediately came back with like, this painting is not for sale, as though that somehow redeemed it. And not that I think it does, but I think it points to this tension of the fact that it's like, you know, in the abstract, it's fine to consider all these works from a critical stance. There shouldn't, what would be off limits that we could see or look at or watch. But then when it comes to them being objects for sale, does that complicate that argument at all for you? When art, you know, when it moves from the realm of criticality into capitalism? I don't see art and commodity like in any kind of fixed relationship. You know, I just think of it as more fluid than that. And I understand, certainly. I mean, I think that Schutz was responding to parts of Hannah Black's letter about it, saying that the image had been put up for Black had said, you know, for profit and for fun. That kind of language that which, you know, it means interesting, profit and fun. They're kind of like, I think a lot of that conversation can be assignations to the artist or to the system or of, of motivations or even of commercial material knowledge that sometimes we don't even have and that we're postulating, you know. But as I read about in the chapter, you know, art often starts as junk, may have a commodified period, then may return to being junk. Most art that it gets made, as probably all of us know in the world, doesn't sell. Very little art operates on the level of sale on the way that we think about market value for labor, you know, in terms of people's working throughout a life, even a piece of art that sells for like a $40,000 painting probably had, you know, 30 years of unpaid labor before that painting. Not all the time. There are rarities. Anyway, my point is that I don't, I'm all for, and I read and I'm interested in material critiques of the art world, such as it is. I think those are utterly valuable. And there are many aspects of the art world that are farcical to nefarious, to just, to all kinds of things. But I really wanted this chapter, kind of like the sex chapter, I really wanted to kind of just not invalidate or in any way deny the value of those readings. But I just wanted to kind of, I imagine in my mind is like moving the abacus bead just like more towards the side of the creating person of like the artist who really doesn't know about the commodity status of the work. Some artists know, but few know. And I just wanted to, again, the corollary with the sex chapter was to kind of move all these conversations about sex and power, you know, back to the experiencing body of sex, you know, like the sexual subject who has a variety of forms of physical and emotional and, you know, spiritual, whatever experience in a land of, you know, eros or something, you know, eros and touch. So that's where the fulcrum of the book, you know, moves to in those chapters. It doesn't, I think it would be dicey territory to get into like, it's okay to censor some pieces of art if they can be proved to be a commodity with a capital C or if they're worth this much money. I would not traffic in that at all. It just doesn't seem commensurate to me with the history of art in terms of pieces that, again, most arts move between being having a valued status and then having a, a status of like, where are we going to put this? You know, should we put it out in the yard for the you know rats to eat? Like, it really does. If you live with an artist, believe me, you know this. Like, it really does move between those places. So I would, and certainly when you get into centuries of time, that becomes even more apparent. Maybe we could also talk about 
the idea of a reparative versus paranoid reading, because I feel like that kind of speaks almost to the point here, which is like, it's not, you're not rooting out one central paranoid of what a painting's value would be or any of these things. And um, so how was that idea by Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick so important to you in the writing of this book? So these terms, reparative and paranoid reading that you're talking about, Kate, you know, were part of the Sedgwick essay that has been very important to me and to many others, and is kind of at the core of a lot of, I think, thinking about criticism and art today, you know, and I think Sedgwick was pointing out what she called this paranoid approach, which she was contrasting to the reparative approach. This is a complicated topic, <laughs> see how, how much I want to explain it. But I think that, to your point about art and commodity, you know, a paranoid approach often has a reductive approach. Like, you're not going to get this past me. I know what this thing really is. You said this is this, you know, luminous piece of art, but I know it's a commodity that sold for X, Y, or Z. You know, there's a kind of, it really is this. Whereas I wouldn't even call it necessarily reparative, but that the allowing for something to be more than one thing at once, like it may be that commodity and it may also offer this spiritual experience. And then tomorrow it may also be like a great, you know, roof for a shelter or something like the painting moves. It's not reducible. And paranoia, as she says, like a logic of paranoia often has a particular relationship to knowledge where it wants to know what something is. It wants to know what it was yesterday, what it is today and what it'll do tomorrow. It forecloses meaning, you know, importantly, with Sedgwick's notion of the paranoid and the reparative, whereas the reparative, whether it's the viewer or the maker of art, is in some ways going, well, this is complicated, but in some ways has to do with the reconstitution of something that might be hostile to you as something that might be of use. Interestingly, Sedgwick, people often think, oh, she argued for the reparative over the paranoid, when in fact her essay is doesn't pose them as things that exist without each other. She poses them more in a kind of seesaw and she feels like criticism has been very heavily weighted towards the paranoid and she's trying to bring focus to what reparative might be. But as she says, and as my book says, you don't destroy the paranoid. That the idea that there's the bad thing you could just as paranoid, <laughs> you know, it furthers the cycle. So in a certain sense, I think, you know, she taught me to take from different thinkers, some of whom are paranoid, some of whom are reparative, some are some combination. And as she says, a lot of artists tend to be very paranoid people who buy a kind of stroke of magic and uh, because they need to make reparative work for themselves, it ends up often being reparative work for others. And then that's when you get into a thing of like, that's so weird. Jack Smith seems so paranoid. Why do I feel so liberated by his work? Like that would be a, you know, a faulty, that would be like a misunderstanding of the way that these things are always in relation. And sometimes, again, with like the Jack Smith example, which she uses, you know, often in the same person and the same place. And so it becomes, you know, an expansive way of reading art to not imagine that there's a homogeneity of motivation, expression, experience that others have of the same piece, you know, but allowing for there to be a lot of play in each of those places. Thank you for that explanation of, of the otherwise very complicated subject. Um, I did a great job, but you know. No, no, I think you did, partly because it truly is really difficult to explain what Sedgwick means eventually in terms of, maybe in terms of practice in that essay. So maybe we can talk about sex a little bit since it came up already. And so one of your chapters here is dedicated to sex and you are thinking about freedom as it relates to sex and more particularly the Me Too movement. What do you see as the complication there in terms of how we think about freedom and how we lately have been talking about sex in the popular culture? 
Yeah, I think it's complicated because I don't personally think of the chapter as really having a whole lot to say about the Me Too movement, which is dedicated on, you know, bringing attention to and hopefully bringing a diminishment of, you know, harassment and assault, you know, sexual harassment and assault in all spheres. And that I'm, you know, fully in support of. So I think that the chapter is more doing the work of like what a cultural critic who kind of stands back, actually a Foucauldian critic, to be honest, who, you know, Foucault's big contribution to especially writing about the Victorian period was to say, huh, everyone says the Victorians were so repressed, but they seem to have produced an enormous discourse about sexuality <laughs> under the name of repression. He called that the repressive hypothesis, you know, like we, they hypothesized it was so, but in fact, we produced. And so I think but with that cultural critic lens, you look at what kind of discourse are we producing? What kind of stories seem to be, you know, do we feel most comfortable telling or is there most space for? And I think in that sense, I kind of noted that, you know, on the one hand, it has been thrilling to read so many stories of raw rejection of the not good enough conditions, you know, specifically for women that still are exist in every sphere. And at the same time, knowing as I do know as a kind of loose scholar of gender, sexuality, and sex, that there's a paucity of stories, especially first-person stories, about sexual desire and sexual pleasure from women and in some instances from queer women insofar as there's a tension about whether or not sexuality, which, you know, Jacqueline Roser, another psychoanalyst would call lawless, you know, like how it can be reconciled with some of the regulatory changes that we'd like to see in different arenas. And it's dogged the question of like, you know, is there female pornography? What does it sound like? What does it look like? Is there feminist pornography? Does feminist pornography have to not be straight? Does feminist pornography have to, you know, there are all these questions, you know, can there be phallophilic, you know, I'm trying to think of the word, not phallocentric, really more like phallophilic, like, you know, what someone in my chapter calls love of the more colloquially, you know, in this writing without it being cast as politically suspect, you know, so all these questions have remained of interest to me. And I do think that there remains quite a bit of taboo in and around those stories. And again, it's a tricky chapter in that there's not any sense in my mind that I wanted these stories to replace the stories of complaint at all. My question was more about can we make sure that we add them? <laughs> and what are the impediments to adding them? Because the impediments are real and they do have to do with this question of sexual subjectivity, which means giving up on fantasies of innocence or lawfulness at all times. And I think that that's a difficulty for feminism now and, and it matters to me a lot. So I wanted to write into that. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Maggie Nelson, author of On Freedom. I don't know why I feel compelled to close with the climate crisis, but it, it is what closes the book. And it is, there seems to be so little room for the reality of it. It's something that we're now locked into. It's the fate of it can sometimes just seem so overwhelming and right and the ball keeps rolling and no one's doing anything and it, it does seem like something where you wish you had more freedom in regards to action and you don't um so and and you describe just and and right and so it leads to a lot of avoidance not really wanting to read or learn about it too much and you describe like the visceral reaction you had negative reactions you had in your body 
reading the information about climate, really pondering like, what if, what if the end date was 2030? Um, that kind of thing. So I guess since that's something we're all experiencing mm -hmm. just continuously, um, can you speak to where you find this, this space in that predicament that we're all in? Yeah, I mean, I guess when you're talking, I think about going back to Eve Sedgwick, who was, you know, so, I mean, who's also all over this book. And, you know, she was a literal teacher of mine. And so I, you know, I learned so much from Eve. But, you know, she had this had this great line where she's talking about someone who'd said like, oh, that's merely ameliorative. Like it just, you know, and she said, why is amelioration so mere? You know, why is why is the idea of making something a, a little bit worse? So why is that so offensive? You know, like I, she's like, I don't think amelioration is mere. Like, I think it's a big deal. Like, and I... You know, in my own life, I often think about like anxiety or things. I think, well, I'm not trying to ab abolish it. It's, but it's like, what if it were on a you know, scale of 10? What if I got it back to a six? Like that would be better, right? I'd feel better. So I think, you know, that doomed, not doomed logic about the climate is one of the things that's just really trapped us. And I think the David Wallace Wells quote I have in my chapter where he says, you know, it's just like, the more and the sooner we can stop pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, the better, you know, the less suffering there will be, period. You know, like it's it's not like, a, and there are of course worries about runaway acceleration. There are worries about, you know, what happens post two degrees. But the point is, is that like, you know, moving past that dichotomy of, as he says, they're not produces a sense of freedom. I think it does for me, which just says, okay, well then I know what to do now. What to do now is we, you know, um, is like any decarbonization is better than no decarbonization. And we have to do that, you know, we have to do it. So, and I think it's useful to be like, yes, it might, like I know it produces urgency to have this or else it might be too late. But since many people already, we've already blown by, you know, we're blowing by 1.5 as a, you know, now when we're gonna move to two as baked in already, but like the, but, but there's no, you don't want it to be five. So like, there's just no sense in feeling like, oh, because we blew by this target, you know, it just, so I think that, actually letting go of that kind of binaristic thinking and allowing for amelioration will produce a grounds for more action and less paralysis. Thanks for that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Maggie, for speaking with us today. I hope this is all good for radio, radio <laughs> ready. It's pretty heavy, but it's, but it's fun to talk. You guys are really smart and involved. And so I really appreciate it. You know. Thank you again. We've been speaking with Maggie Nelson. Her new book is On Freedom. Four Songs of Care and Constraint. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Mm -hmm.